Hi, I'm Greg Eulen with Reynolds & Reynolds, and this is Connected. Today, I get to sit down with Shannon Robertson, who's the Executive Director at the Associate of Finance and Insurance Professionals, or AFIP, as most of us know it. Uh, looking forward to this conversation and, and kind of seeing where it goes. Shannon, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Yep, absolutely. So, Shannon, I think AFIP is one of those organizations that pretty much every dealership is aware of. They kind of know what um, what the organization's about uh, and and what you offer. Um, been around for a long time. You can probably tell me the date, but I mean, it's been at least twenty five years, I think. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, you and I don't really know each other much. I, I did just a, a quick little bit of research before hopping on and, and noticed you were at Fidelity for over a decade, I think. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious what you did there and what your transition was like going from, um, you know, that world into automotive retail, or if, if it was a transition, if you were doing similar things. Um, so, yeah, I can, give, I can give, uh, give a quick background. So I worked for Fidelity Yes, close to 15 years, 10 to 15 years. Um, I started there in college. I started on the phones, moved into customer service, um, and then moved into client management. Uh, in, you know, as a manager in the department, one of the things I was asked to become was the compliance officer. Uh, I was asked to oversee and make sure that we passed our audits. Um, and I became a compliance officer, kind of like dealers appoint compliance officers today. Um, I was informed that there was an audit happening and we needed to not fail the audit. I asked why I needed to know that. And they said, because you're on paper, you're a compliance officer, uh, don't fail the audit, right? So as I was uh, went home and getting ready, I'm on online Googling, what is a compliance officer, um, <laughs> right? Now we were SEC licensed, so we had knowledge of what we needed to do to be compliant. I just thought, did not know what my job would be as that. And it wasn't an independent decision. We had our normal job titles and job roles, but on the but I still had to manage that side. And that's where I started to get into compliance and understand compliance and also understand how to help people be compliant, right? What I quickly found was, is that if every manager did an, the audit with me at least once a year, they understood what needed to be done and they were more likely to do the right things the first time once they saw the headache of trying to get things corrected. So there were some lessons learned there at Fidelity from a compliance standpoint. Sure. Um, I enjoyed my career at Fidelity. Um, auto is what I know. I, you know, I grew up with family in an auto industry. I love auto. Um, I knew I'd eventually transition to auto. So uh, towards the end of my Fidelity career, I decided to move to the automotive side. Uh, spent about spent some time at a dealership doing sales, doing finance, um, and then I transitioned over to AFIP as a trainer. And then over the last seven eight, eight years, I've moved from a trainer into the executive director role. Uh, just bringing over from Fidelity the client management side, the compliance side, and the technology technology side, and being able to uh, implement that into my, you know, my tenure here at AFIP and be able to kind of bring us into more of a modern day presentation with our Zoom classes, online classes. And I think the most important thing to give a long answer here is one of the things we've transitioned with AFIP is not just do you know the laws, but moving into what we call behavioral change training. There's a lot of training companies out there that you just do online training, you take a test, yeah, at that moment, you know what you needed to know to pass, and life goes on. What we're really set on is making sure that you understand the reasoning behind the rules in place, why you do things the way you're supposed to do things, 
and the and what happens if you don't. So when you go back to your job, you do it differently because you know it and you believe it. And I think that's really the big push for AFIP right now. And in today's environment, very important for what a dealer needs. Yeah, that's a good point. And I like how you frame it up, too, because, you know, at the end of the day, um, any regulatory agency doesn't care if you're certified in X, Y or Z. They care what you did or didn't do. Right. I mean, it's it's not about what class you took. It's about the behavior that you exhibited. 100 percent. The other thing we found today is if we go through dealers that have been fined by the FTC, rarely is it the entire organization. It's one rooftop, two rooftops. Right. There's usually bad behaviors that have creeped into one or two of the locations. So the other thing that we find is if your staff is AFIP certified, they know this information at a whole different level and they understand the impact. So if they see bad behaviors creep in, they will report it and they will shut it down. Yeah. Right. If you look at some of those other dealers, everybody knew things were happening that weren't supposed to. Nobody said anything. Right. Yeah. Somebody with knowledge and confidence to speak up eliminates those rogue employees from causing those behaviors to spread throughout the organization. And that's the other reason why I think that knowledge and confidence that we that we provide is so important. Yeah, for sure. So in your experience or, you know, just kind of looking at it, how does that happen? Right. How does I don't think anybody sets out to break the law or anybody has an intentional purpose to go out and, and treat you know a consumer poorly. Um, what What is it that ends up getting people in hot water or going down that path of just, you know, to use your language, their bad behaviors of like what why why go there? Like, how does it happen? Uh, there are several different reasons. I mean, you and I both know the answer to almost any question like that's follow the money, right? At some point, everybody's trying to max out their bonus plans the most that yep. they can. I have a bonus plan. You have a bonus plan. We all have bonus plans, right? So I think some of it is just people trying to figure out how to max out their bonus plan. And in my opinion, with the least amount of effort possible, we could that's all max fair. out bonus plans and do it right. Most people, some people will choose the easy route. The other thing I think is just lack of knowledge. There's a lot of times we teach and somebody will say, I've been doing this for 20 years. I had no idea it was an actual rule violation to do it. So knowledge has a lot that goes into play there as well, right? Just because they were trained that way doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. And we see that come into play a lot. Um, and And I'm sure there's a lot of other factors we can put into that. But I think those are two of the major factors um, That's when it, that comes into play. Yeah. And when you think about education, too, I'm, I'm curious to talk a little bit about the different levels of certification that you offer at AFIP. Because, uh, you know, again, been around for decades at this point. And, uh, you know, over the years, obviously, it's evolved and grown. And you guys have done a good job, um, not only just changing uh, with with regulations and with times, but having new offerings for for dealers and for dealership personnel to continue to grow. So um, can you talk a little bit, I guess, about the different offerings that you have and and kind of why, I suppose, all those different offerings are there and and what the target audience is for? Absolutely. So we start with our basic certification. Um, You you recertify every two years. You can call it continued education if you'd like, but every two years you recertify. And then as you recertify, you move up from basic to senior, senior to master, and master to lifetime master. A um, couple reasons why. One, the rules change, right? Government focus changes, 
There's different areas of focus. So every two years as you recertify, you get up to date on what's changed since you were certified last. What are the current areas of focus? What's the compliance topic? What are the new fines? And then also as you move up, we, we start to deep dive into, into some of those compliance topics, right? Basic AFIP is just, do you know the rules? Do you know the policies? As we get into master and lifetime master, we really deep dive into those different uh, nuances of the compliance guidelines, right? Basic is what's the privacy rule? On the master and lifetime master, we get into the actual details of the privacy rule as an example. Yeah. So when you think about two years and you think about uh, what's going on right now and, you know, the regulatory environment, I would imagine that uh, a lot of folks are going to want to at least be educated, if not go through a formal certification class, probably sooner than than the next two years. Um, you just look at, again, everything that is changing from privacy laws to other proposed legislation out there, or at least regulations out there um, around, you know, how things have to be presented and what you have to say and what you can't say. Um, th there's a lot going on right now. There is a lot. And you're right. I mean, uh, a one-time certification just doesn't prepare you from a career standpoint. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk a lot with finance managers on being, there's a difference between having a title and being a master of your trade, right? So a lot of conversation we have with individuals is how do you become a master of your trade? And part of that is continued education, right? Reading, certifying, and not just AFIP, but just being aware of what's happening in the in the industry. Uh, one of the changes we're making for 2023 is that rules change and new modules need to be created. Anybody who's current with certification will get access and an update that the new modules are on our learning management system, right? As you mentioned, if those proposed regulations go into place, anybody who's currently certified will automatically get an update letting them know new modules are loaded, there's new information you need to be aware of today uh, because of changes. Yeah, good. Um, that, that's that's great news. Um, can you talk a little bit too? So I'm curious your perspective. I mean, you're you know chin deep in this stuff. So I'm curious your perspective on um, you know where we're at. So historically, it doesn't seem, at least, and you probably have a different perspective than I do, just being in it. But um, it doesn't seem that there's always been a, a terrific focus on pin and car dealers down. Right. Like, obviously, um, we were in an industry that, that's consumer consumer focused, consumer facing. So there, there can be issues, uh, but it, it doesn't seem like it's always been, you know, uh, I'll use this word kind of loosely, but like a witch hunt. Um, but with where we're at today, especially from the federal perspective, it seems like um, there is more and more and more attention being put on car dealerships for for whatever reason. Um, curious what your thoughts are on that, and if if you agree or if you see it differently. No, I agree with hundred percent. The focus the focus right now is on car dealers. I mean, from a CFPB and an FTC standpoint, uh, we are in their sight. We are a focus, um, and even from a, from some state attorney generals as well. A couple of reasons why. Um, one, complaints, right? If you look his, if you look at from what the FTC said, we're the third largest complaint industry that they receive. Now, if you look at the number of complaints versus number of cars sold, number of service, you know, number of service uh, times you get service, our percentage of complaint overall is not even one percent. Sure. However, that's not how they look at it. They look at it total complaints. So from a government standpoint, we're the third largest industry from a complaint standpoint. 
The second thing, and this is really what the government's been going after, is um, you know the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act provided the government with an umbrella or a secondary way to assess fines over dealers. And it's known as unfair and deceptive act or practices from an FTC standpoint, um, or unfair and deceptive abusive acts or practices from a CFPB standpoint. And that's a subjective umbrella that it gives the government to come in and look at us and audit us. And if they determine our actions fall under those definitions, they can assess a fine for that. And there is no cap when it comes to those fines. So I think the government's been more aggressive under the UDAP umbrella because it is based on their perception or what they can prove in court, right? The FTCs have written rules. If I violate a written rule, there's a specific fine, 46517 for 2022, right? But there are dealer actions that, that are outside of what is or is not a written rule, and that's where UDAP comes into play. I joke with dealers that UDAP governs the gray, right? Car yeah. dealers... We find that gray area, right? We're not illegal, but we find that gray area. That's where UDAP comes into play. The other focus on the government right now is they're, they're assessing fines under what's known as disparate, right? Disparity occurs when a member of a non-protected class receives a rate, price, or something that's better than a, than a protected class when all other variables are similar. So that's the big fuss focus right now is what they're looking at. Are we consistent on how we treat similar customers? Right. If we look at one of the dealers that have been fined, they were one of the reasons they were fined was disparate pricing on aftermarket products. African-Americans were charged $99 more on an average per year than on African-Americans. I, I truly don't believe the dealer was targeting African-Americans, but that's where the numbers laid out when they did the audit. When the dealer was asked how they priced their products and they did not have a policy for product pricing, then they fell under a UDAP violation for disparate pricing. Got it. Right. That's why, and we can tie, we'll probably get into this, but these policies that a dealer needs to have become so important because it helps protect them in those situations. So to, to have a policy like that, there's probably at least two pieces, and you can speak to it much more in depth, but you have, you know, a, a written policy, right? Something that you actually write down, that's stored, that you reference. Uh, but then you also have um, the people that are, are following the policy, right? And and behavior. So there, there's one thing to do something, but if it, and if it goes against the policy, then how does, I guess... From what you've seen, how does that work? You know, is the individual liable at that point? Is the, the dealership still liable? Is the business, is it both? Um, how does that work and how much protection is there in having a written policy versus both parts of it, which is, you know, written and execution? Well, it's a good question. So obviously, we, from a compliance standpoint, you have to have written guidelines. They have to be approved by the board of directors. We implement them. There's oversight. We document any breaches, right? Annually, we audit, we update. There's an entire compliance program. Right. And what you said, part of that is having to enforce it to have a compliance program. I wrote eight years ago that I've never updated and I don't enforce really doesn't protect the dealer at all. Um, where a dealer finds protection is where they have the policy. They are showing documentation of enforcement. They hold their employees accountable if they violate it. There's protection there. The other thing is, is it helps combat government perception. There is an NADA policy when it comes to how you handle markups over the buy rate. 
Fair Credit Compliance Policy Procedures, right? If you follow that NADA policy and you implement it the way that it's designed, the purpose of it is to eliminate the government's perception on you having disparate pricing because you have a policy in place on how you treat your customers. If you deviate at all from that, you deviate with an approved reason why. So if you're audited and you're, they, the government wants to argue that you're disparate on your markup over buy rate, you can combat that with saying, we have a policy, we only deviate in this situations, and now you can provide reality to what the government perception is. And that's the point of those policies, is to show true reality. Yeah, <clears throat> no, that's great. That's great. So, I mean, this is a world that, um, uh, you know, you, you need at the dealership level, at the store level, um, you know, a GM's responsible for the operations of the store, right? The dealer's responsible for the operations of the store. But um, it, it's it's a full-time job, right? It, this it's, isn't something that you can, <laughs> it's not something you can do as just, you know, kind of my, my 17th thing I need to be responsible for. In today's environment, your compliance officer is a full-time position. Um, obviously, in a single rooftop, two rooftops, that's a little different. Um, the other thing is, and what we've seen in today's environment, is that compliance officer needs to have direct report to the board of directors, right? That compliance officer should not report to somebody like a finance director, right, whose bonus based upon product sales, right? It needs to, they have a vested interest in that. So your compliance officer needs to be having a, needs to be in an independent decision and needs to have direct report and be part of the board of directors meeting. It needs to present, it needs to share that information. Um, in today's environment, that's where it needs to be. It needs to be part yeah. of the minutes and everything. No, that's, that's a good point. And, and thinking about, you mentioned there, not reporting in the specific example, not reporting to you know, the F&I director, as an example. Um, you know, and we talked about basically bonus plans, pay plans a little bit earlier. Um, how successful can shifting your your pay structure be in in shifting behavior in this world? Um, and is it even worth it, right? Or or is it one of those you, you know you have um, things that you want to measure through your pay plan, and then you have other things that you need to do for compliance purposes, and and they're you know they're they're they need to be measured together. But you know can can pay plan dictate some of this behavior too? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, we're all driven by our pay plans. Right. I mean, obviously, we all want to do what's right. People have code of ethics. I mean, there's things that come into play, people as a whole, right? Yeah. I'm not saying there aren't bad apples in that mix, but as a whole, we want to do what's right. On the other hand, we got to pay our house payment, got to pay our car payment, right? There's things that we have to do. Um, so with that said, your pay plan needs to be a complement to what the dealer's culture compliance is. Every, every dealer needs to say, this is my code of ethics. This is my... Uh, compliance culture. It needs to be a top-down approach, and everybody has to believe in it, and the pay plan has to match to that, right? Yeah. What we've seen, I've seen quite a few dealers, uh, you know, recently start to uh, add to the bonus plans number of products sold per customer, right? What we want to sell the customer, our products provide value, right? So instead of bonusing somebody off how much they can mark up one product, why don't we bonus them based on what what number of products they can sell to the customer so the customer gets the most value out of that amount, right? When it comes to putting products out there, everybody's trying to meet back-end allowance. Yeah. So there's a difference between maxing out one product to beat, meet back-end allowance 
or selling two or three products per customer at, at a consistent price and still meeting back end allowance. So from a government standpoint, from a government looking in, right? If, if everybody anybody questions our profit, right? It's not about how much money I made on one product. It's the fact that the customer bought three products of value and we still met that back end allowance. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And um, so thinking about that, we, we talk about that a lot. I, I certainly do where, you know, where does the dealership bring value, right? In that, in that uh, interaction, in that transaction, where are you bringing value? And a lot of it does come um, on the back end of the deal. So, um, you know, how, how you present those things, how you educate the consumer really makes a big difference. Um, I want to talk a little bit too, if you don't mind, about uh, a lot of the training that you do and your team does. Uh, one of them we partnered up on for uh, the, the DocuPad AFIP bootcamp, um, and you know, obviously, we we love the DocuPad system. Our customers love it, and uh, it's it's one of those things that has has really changed the way. Uh, Consumers are able to be educated, and F and I producers are able to present and sell. Um, but talk a little bit about that joint uh, effort and that boot camp, and how you run that. Uh, what you see coming out of it for dealers? So uh, it's a great it's a it's a great joint venture. I like it. I mean, I think we've seen nothing but positive reviews from people that have gone through it, right? And it's at the moment it's designed for people going through DocuPad training for the first time at that entry level, if I understand correctly. And then they have AFIP at the same time. And the reason why it's a good match is if you're going to teach them a different way to do it or a way that it has to be done, you pair it with our training with an understanding of why. I like DocuPad and I like these web-based process systems that we have because it forces a process that has to be followed each and every time, right? It eliminates a lot of those deviations or exceptions that might expose a dealer. The other thing is, you know, pretty quickly it, when the deal's done, was it done right or was it was it was there something missed, something done incorrectly? You can do somewhat of a deal audit check pretty quickly the minute they submit it. Yep. Um, you know, so it works well together, and it just it's information that builds. The other point is, Reynolds and AFIP share the same value, right? So we're also both teaching the same value in the same code of ethics. Right. When you're teaching DocuPad and, and this is what, how the system works, it's designed on the value and the ethics. We treat customers fairly. We do it right. So it pairs to what we're doing as well with that underlying message. And it tells the employee that the dealer, right, thinks this is so important. They're going to spend money on it, put everybody in through it. And it also sends the message that this is the only way you do it. And I like that all of those messages messages are combined together on that. Yeah, it's like hardwiring your uh, your policies, right? You have a you have a written policy, but then um, how do you enforce it? And if you can kind of force march that process, um, it it makes it a lot lot easier for everybody to follow. It makes it a lot easier for you to show that it was followed. And, and some of the things I like about it, just to jump on there, is for example, in a in a e contract environment, a customer has to consent to do the electronic process. There's things they have to agree to, right? In DocuPad, it's the first consent. I agree, right? So you guys teach them. Here's the consent. The customer has agreed to it. We teach them what's in that consent, so they understand what the customer is actually reading or authorizing. So if they question it, hey, what is this agreed to? That's where we come into play. Yeah, education level. 
So when you think about digital signing and, you know, obviously e-contracting is important and it's an important part of that or an end product of that. But when you think about signing digitally, um, there's a lot of different ways to do it, right? We, we just talked about the DocuPad, which, you know, is a 44-inch touchscreen that sits on a desk. It's pretty hard not to read the document. It's right, right. there in front of you, right? Um, but you also have, you'll see, um, and this is outside of automotive too, but you'll see kind of just a pen pad, right, where you're signing your signature. Um, you'll see, you know, an iPad. You'll see there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Because from my perspective, you know, it's like paper is one thing, but when you print a deal, um, you know, it's, it's about 39 feet of paper because of mm-hmm. all the regulations, you know, single copy, 39 feet. Um, when you, when you put that in front of somebody, the odds of them reading all that stuff is pretty slim, right? It's signed there initial here. Um, when you do it digitally, um, and especially if you give them a review copy, my, my perception personally, I would be more prone to at least skim and get a decent read on, on what's being put in front of me versus having a stack of paper that I have to go through. So um, I don't know. I'm curious your thoughts on all the different methods of signing and if one is more effective than another or more uh, secure or compliant even to use that word. I got you. So couple th- the way we teach it isn't necessarily one's better than the other. These sure. are the things you have to do to be compliant. Right. I agree with your statement. I like the iPads. I like the DocuPads. Right. In today's environment, if I hand you a big book to read and tell you to read it, you're probably not going to read it. If I throw an iPad in front of you and tell you to scroll through some pages, you're going to scroll through the pages. Right. It's I mean, how many hours do people spend an average a day flipping through Facebook, Instagram? <laughs> right. There's just some there's just for it's it's a change of human nature. Right. Um I, I agree. More, I think more people are willing, are more inclined to maybe pay more attention when you break it down the way you guys break it down. You have it on that DocuPad. They can look at, they can look at it, they can scroll through it, and it's not an overwhelming amount of paper handed. Yeah. The 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 concern I have with some of the other systems where you, not everything's right in front of them, where I'm turning my screen around, you have a pad. Is is disclosure today is two part. It's verbal and visual. Right. And I, it's a change from the way we've seen things historically. Right. It was on the screen. Customers should have seen it disclosed. Now we're learning that disclosure is verbal and visual. So if as we move to that mindset, screens that are interactive, that has all the information right in front of the customer, where I can simply walk through, review it with them, show them, verbally explain it, and then they see it helps you from a compliance it helps you to solidify your compliance process. Sure. Because everything there is visual. As you know, on DocuPad, there's nothing I can't do that doesn't just reflect right on the screen. Right. Right. If I change it, you see it. Right. I can't submit anything until it's 100% completed. Right. I can't submit it, go back, change a bunch of numbers, then I have to start the process over. Right. That's That's what I like about your system from a compliance standpoint is it's built to eliminate some of those human errors or areas where dealers have found to be non-compliant in the process. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, a good read on it. Um, another thing to take it a step further, I think it's a step further. We'll see. Um, you know, thinking about into the future and more and more parts of a deal being done online. Right. And yep. uh, from from everything that we see right now and, you know, everything when we when we survey consumers, the F&I process is still one where consumers want to be educated. Right. They want to sit down. They want to talk to somebody. Most dealerships would tell you, 
you know, the, that consumer is coming in to buy the car at some point, you know, and, and worst case, they may ask us for a digital copy that they can review at home, sign at home, but they want to sit down with an F&I professional to, at a minimum, understand what products are available because they just don't know, right? You don't buy this don't. stuff every day. Um, but as as we progress in time and as more and more people uh, want to do more and more pieces of the puzzle online, um how do you see that impacting a you know compliance, but b just the role of the F and I manager and what they do, how they operate, you know, where they add value? Well, gee, just a quick answer. I don't think the F and I manager manager position is going away, right? There's some not argument sure. there that at some point it's going away. It's not going away. For example, no. for exactly what you said, when it gets to the products, they want to talk to somebody, right? I don't remember the study done. I don't want to make up the numbers, but percentage, the amount of time a customer spends online researching the vehicle versus researching products, right? All of my online research is done researching the vehicle, rate, stuff like that. They don't spend time reviewing the products. That's why we have F&I managers. It's yeah. our job to uncover the needs of the products and match it to the customer's needs. That's what we do. Um, in terms of the future, right? Not everybody buys things the same way. I mean, if I go to Walmart or Target, I can buy my groceries online, have them shipped to my house. I can buy them online, pick up at the store. I can go to the store and do it myself. Are dealers going to need, will dealers need to be set up to support all of those buying processes? The answer is yes, right? As a dealer grows and a dealer becomes adaptable, I don't think we forget one way and go to another way. I think that we be become adaptable to the type of customers we have. We have an on-site version. We can go old school, come to our store. We spend a couple hours. We go to the box. No problem, right? You can go online. I can FaceTime, Zoom with you. I can show you the screen. Every All of your guys's everything we do now in the e-contracting, you can put on the menu. You can put on the computer screen share. We can do the same process. Come to the store, pick it up, or we can do the same process, and I'll have the card delivered to you. Right. As long as the process is consistent from a compliance standpoint, I don't think one way is necessarily better than the other, as long as you're getting the same touch points. But dealers will have to be adaptable to say, how do you want to buy the car today? I can do it one of several ways, which is the best for you. And I think dealers that present it that way will see a positive uh, return from the customers and our flexibility instead of saying, this is the way you have to do it. The other aspect of that is if those FTC proposed rules go into effect as is, which I don't think they will, but if they do, the entire process will have to be digital, in my opinion, to be able to show full compliance. The minute the co customer contacts our BDC, we open a file and we're digital from then on out. Whether we have salesmen walking around with iPads, however we become compliant with it, um, we will eventually have to go to a full digital process from the first contact till the end. Well, and there's a couple of things I would add to that. So, you know, first is when you think about those different ways to buy a car, right? Those different consumers that want different ways to do it um, from the, the dealership's perspective, it needs to be the same process. You can't have three different ways of doing it, right? You, yes, the, the consumer wants three different ways to interact with you, but the actual process you're delivering and what your, your F&I manager and even your salespeople are going through, you can't expect them to have three different ways of doing it or three different tools to use to, to execute that process. I, I think back, 
you know, when uh, I was a kid, I grew up in a parts store. And, um, you know, I think about how I interacted with customers when they were standing in front of me across the counter, how I interacted with them when, when they were calling on the phone. And, and it's, it's difficult to manage you know, different ways of doing business as, as a, an employee, right. As an F and I yeah. producer. So you got to have the same tools, you got to have the same process and then be able to deliver it in different ways. So that's the first thing. The other thing I would say is, you know, you're talking about, uh, having a digital file, um, and you look at, you know, the dealership world today, even just in F and I, but you can go, you can expand beyond that into different parts of the business too. Um, you know, how many different records do you have for a customer, for a vehicle, for a transaction? Um, and you know, how many different places does that information live? And if, if you have a different tool for, you know, your phone interaction versus your online interaction versus your in-store interaction, that that's a really difficult situation to be in, right? You said your BDC opens up a file. Which file is it? And you got to have that single place uh, with a single unique identifier for really every customer, every vehicle, and every interaction. It's where we're <clears throat> excuse me. It's where we're going. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry about that. It is where we're going, and it's where we need to be. To your point, right? I think if we're trying to show consistency to the customers, we're trying to show compliance across the board. We should have a single file that shows their history, everything we need in one spot. Yep. Right. Our systems should speak together. Right. I mean, we, as a nonprofit, my pockets aren't deep, but I always joke, whoever has the deepest, deepest pockets will create this. Right. From the minute I contact BDC files open. If I already have an existing file, I bought a car 10 years ago, it attaches, it has the information. I can verify the information. Is this accurate? Do I need to update it? And I think there's a there's a you come across so much more personable when you can say, hey, I've seen you contacted us before. You looked at a car last year. You looked at a car six months ago. Right. You know, what is there a reason why you chose to not buy at that time? What's bringing you back? Uh, it changes the interaction and it becomes so much more personal. The customer has a connect. The minute you do that, you have a connection with that customer. They think you're they're contacting you at about a single car. You've created a connection. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Um, all right, Shannon, we've talked about a bunch of different different pieces. One thing uh, you mentioned earlier, I was just looking at my notes, I wrote down, I was, um, you mentioned that, that dealerships as an industry were the third largest volume of consumer complaints, right? Um, I'm kind of curious, you know, if, if I go through the process of selling a car, uh, and that customer is, is ticked off, like, do I know Right. I mean, I would think logically I would know that somebody is, is going to end up going and complaining. And, and if, if so, and maybe maybe not, maybe I'm wrong, but if so, how do I help resolve that then and there versus, you know, waiting to get some sort of fine or investigation? Well, I think we know our customers, right? Yeah, I, I, think, well, that's what I think we know if a customer's buying the car and there's frustration, I think there needs to be training created to just stop and say, what's going on, right? You came here to buy a car. Congratulations. We want this to be a good experience. You seem frustrated. You seem upset, right? Let's walk through it. Um, you know, I, I think there needs to be training there. I, you know, I've, I've got a whole different side tangent not to get on in, but I think that we need to train F&I managers that rejection is not personal, right? Sometimes if they don't buy products from us, we, you know, that stupid customer, we make statements that I don't think are accurate, yeah. right? We take it personal. 
right? We get upset. We maybe change how we treat customers because they don't buy a product. There's no money in it. So let's just get them in and out, right? I think there needs to be training there. And that, like I said, that's a whole nother conversation. But I think the first thing we have to be trained to do is to identify that customer behavior and provided word tracks on how to handle that. We don't want to lose the deal. On the other hand, we want another deal from that customer, right? So to ignore it means you got a single deal, you might not get a second deal, right? You want referrals, there's things you want out of that. So I think there needs to be training on how to identify and what are the word tracks you to use to resolve. Um, from a complaint standpoint, I think this is a much larger topic of conversation. Um, one of the statements made by the head of the CFPB in a, in a speech he gave at a, at a conference was uh, every dealer that has received enforcement action by an agency was all driven by a consumer complaint. And if we take a step back and think about it, I think the most important thing out of that is how do we handle our complaints so they don't go somewhere else? Yeah. Most dealers do not have a complaint management system. Most stores leave complaints up to each store to handle. A large organization, I have 35 rooftops. I let each, each rooftop handle their own. As we can see from government actions, right, we, from some recent dealers that have been fined, two of the rooftops, three of the rooftops were fined for behavior that was deceptive. There were complaints coming in. They knew it. They, they, they tried to hide them at that store level and never made it to the corporate office. So what we teach is you need to have a single complaint management system that goes to your compliance officer. Not that each store doesn't resolve it, but everything goes through the compliance officer first. That allows them to watch the complaints, look at trends, look for consistencies. Is there a single employee receiving more than the other? And looking for consistencies on why those complaints are coming in. The other way you, the other reason why you do that is you can actually show resolution. You and I both know that if you're upset and the organization doesn't resolve it, you're going to go somewhere to complain. Sure. You can go to the Better Business Bureau. You can go to the AG's website. You can go directly to the FTC's website, click on the drop down. It's on the front page. Want to file a complaint? Yeah. Drop down, auto's there, right? It's easy to issue those complaints. So if I know that's what the government's using as a follow up to how they do you know, their auditing, then I need, I need to make sure my customers don't get there. I, I handle my own complaints and I do that at a store level. The other thing I think you need to do is you need to put a link directly on your website that says, if you're unhappy, I want to know why, right? This is our corporate compliance culture. As an organization, here's what we believe our customer, how our customers should be treated. If you were not treated that way, tell me why. Yeah. Now, I guarantee you, they're going to get a lot of complaints that, that really don't hold any weight, right? Coffee sucks in service. Right. I waited 20 minutes for an oil train. You're going to get a lot of complaints there that are easy to just handle and move on. On the other hand, you're also going to get complaints there that you're probably going to need to be aware of that may be actions at your store that you need to resolve so those complaints don't hit to another level. Right. I don't I don't know why we hide from these complaints. Put it on the website, make it clear for everybody to see. And as a business owner, I would want to know what your opinion is of my company, good or bad. Yeah. I want to know it and I want to know why or why not. Um, and that's that's what I think we need to do. If we want to stay off the radar and not be one of those organizations that gets audited by the, one of these agencies, you got to handle your complaints and you got to hit them head on. 
Yeah, and you got to be, I think, to your point, too, you got to be in front of it, right? Don't don't be reactive. Don't wait for, you know, somebody to complain somewhere else and then you defend yourself. It's get that feedback proactively, um, be ahead of it, and, and fix it on your own, right? And that's where a lot of this stuff, I mean, that, that core principle, I think, and correct me here, but is, is one of the reasons AFIP was even created was, you know, let's, let's monitor this stuff internally inside of our industry and not be, have our hand forced by, you know, government agencies and, and different regulations that come down. Let's, let's get our arms wrapped around this ourselves and create standards, create codes of ethics and create, you know, ways of doing business that are the right way to do it. 100%. As a matter of fact, I have an exam in front of me. I know you can't see it, but on an AFIP exam are eight code of ethics. Yeah. When you pass AFIP and you sign those eight code of ethics, right? If you violate those, those are fireable and a fireable offense at your dealership for violating an AFIP code of ethics. And to your point, one of the reasons why AFIP was created was to protect the auto industry, right? If there's less complaints, there's less pressure on the government to enact legislation. So one of the major focuses was provide education and give a dealer a due diligence that if they have a rogue employee, then we can protect from it with the AFib exam. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Um, all right, Shannon, definitely appreciate the time. We've been kind of going all over the place, but uh, what um, what haven't we talked about that we should? Anything you want to touch on before we uh, before we hop out of here? Uh, just compliance. I mean, you just got to have a compliance officer. I mean, we mentioned it earlier, but I mean, there's I could spend hours answering this question. But I, in my opinion, the two major things you need to have is a compliance program. You need to find somebody that's qualified, put them in charge, and they need to create a, a code of ethics that the owners need to implement top down. I think to me, that every organization needs to start there. And they and enforcing it, as you mentioned, you have to enforce it, right? The second thing I think dealers can do right now um, is have that complaint management system. And the third thing is, Implement NADA policies. NADA has several good policies out designed to protect the dealer. You have the Fair Credit Compliance Policy Program. You have the Voluntary Protection Product Policy. Right, There are policies out there that dealers need to implement. NADA puts them in place for a reason. They're designed to protect the dealer. Dealers need to look at those policies, implement them, reach out to AFIP. We can implement them. I mean, there's a, there, sorry, we're always selling in the car industry, that's so right. we can implement them. Um, but with that said, I think that's where the, that's to me, that's the focus, right? Compliance, have a person in charge, manage your complaints, implement the policies, be proactive. And then the last thing I would say is jump online. If you're on social media, all of these government agencies have social media pages, whether it be LinkedIn, Twitter, FTC, CFPB, join them all. Because then you get, you start to see what their daily actions are, and you see those emails. You know, dealer, West Virginia dealer, New Jersey dealer, right? Once you start to see them come in, then you get an idea of what's actually happening in our industry. If you wait for somebody to tell you, you don't really know what's happening. So follow everybody, all of them on social media. It's educational. It's eye-opening. Um, it's good stuff. Yep, 100% agree. All right. Well, Shannon Robertson, Executive Director of AFIP, thank you very much for uh, for taking time today. Uh, definitely a, a great conversation and appreciate, uh, appreciate all your time. Thank you. I appreciate the time as well. I'm going to keep drinking Monsters on screen until Monsters starts to send me money as a sponsorship. So thank you as well. No, that's a great idea. That's a great. We'll, uh, we'll tag them when we post this. 
Let's do that. I, I, I need free monsters <laughs> at our office. I, in all honesty, I appreciate the time. I like to do these. Reynolds and AFIP has a great relationship that I know is going to go for a long time. So thank you for having me on. Yep, absolutely. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. What a deep conversation with Shannon Robertson, Executive Director at AFIP. I uh, definitely appreciate him hopping on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Very educational, so I hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, before we hop off, don't forget, you can watch or listen to episodes of Connected on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify podcasts. And make sure to subscribe so you're notified every other Wednesday when new episodes are released. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.